369, Chapter 4. Book Talk begins almost immediately. Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 369. It's that time again. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle at Etsy. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Subbable, the site where you can go to support your favorite content creators. Visit subbable.com slash craftlit and sign up for perks and fun. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Links to all of our sponsors can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello! It's that time of year again. The time when we all look at the things that we thought we were going to make for Christmas and say, I thought what? (laughs) Also that time of year when I get a cold. So if I get gravelly, (laughs) it's just right before I'm about to take a drink. And it'll get better, I promise. But... Because it is that time of year again, pretty much all crafty stuff is on hiatus because I have to plow through recording quite a few episodes so that I can go see my sister and my family for Christmas up in Syracuse. So on that note, I do have one crafty email to read to you and then we'll launch right into the book. This email comes from Michelle. Michelle said, I was just listening to episode 366 where you're discussing English paper piecing, and I was curious to know if you've heard of Molly Johnson. I don't know if that's a typo, if it's supposed to be Johansson or not, but her blog is Wild Olive, which is wildolive, all one word, dot blogspot.com. Michelle goes on to say she does the cutest embroidery projects and English paper piecing projects. She's incredibly friendly and creative, and I really enjoy her projects. She's currently in the middle of a United States paper piecing slash embroidery club, and I thought everyone might find that interesting. So, hmm, new blog to go look at if you haven't found it before. I actually went over and looked at it, and it's a beautiful blog, and she does beautiful work, and so that's kind of inspirational. I also went on Craftsy just to see if they had any English paper piecing classes, and they do not yet. I'm hoping that they will, perhaps, get Diane Gilliland to come and teach. She does such a good job anyway. But there are lots of piecing tutorials and a couple of, I think, binding tutorials in the quilty side of things over at Craftsy. So that is good to know. Now to launch us into Herland this week, I have two quotes from Julie Davis over at Forgotten Classics podcast. The first is she sent me a quote from Madeline Albright. And this is the quote. I'm not a person who thinks the world would be entirely different if it was run by women. If you think that, you've forgotten what high school was like. (laughs) I knew I liked her. 
And the other thing that Julie sent was that she is going to go out and make herself a t-shirt that says in big letters, I hate Terry. And she will be able to identify Craftlet listeners because from the other side of the street, they will yell, me too. (laughs) Which is true. And Terry is just going to continue to be the putz. He is. He's just, he's annoying. And, uh, And Julie also said that she would be very curious to hear what my dad has to say. So when I'm up there at Christmas time, I'm going to see if I can corral him with my my little portable microphone thing and and get his reactions to to this particular book. It'll be it'll it's curious. I'm very curious to see what he has to say. But when last we left our intrepid travelers, they had lowered themselves out a window down a cliff face and there they were. And so now we get to find out how far they get. Do they get away? Do they get to their plane? Is their plane even there anymore? Have the women dismantled it and used it for, you know, target practice? We don't know. But we only have a couple of things to go over before the chapter starts. One is that we received a comment on the blog last week. This was from uh, Juliana, and she linked us to a YouTube video, which is notated by the hashtag like a girl, which I don't know about you, but brings up all sorts of things for me because I throw like a girl in the stereotypical horrible way (laughs) that, that you don't want to throw. But this YouTube video is very interesting. Always the Femprot company, this is my, my college roommate called Feminine Protection Femprot, which is far better thing to say out in public when you say, did you remember the Fembrot? Nobody knows what you're saying. Well, now you all do, but that's okay. I trust you. So the Always Company commissioned a documentary filmmaker, a woman, to interview people in general, but also young girls, prepubescent girls, and to ask them to demonstrate throwing like a girl, running like a girl, hitting like a girl, all that kind of stuff. And The results are what you might expect for the older than, say, 15 crowd. You know, with the older ones, you get the arms flailing and the, oh, my hair is getting messed up and uh, stop. But with the young girls, you know, fifth graders, fourth graders, third graders, when it's run like a girl, they run. And when it's fight like a girl, they fight. And, And so when does this change happen? Well, it happens during puberty and it's fascinating because there is a boy, a young boy, who they ask, I don't know, he's probably fifth or sixth grade, well, sixth or seventh grade. They ask him, so when you said, when you demonstrated running like a girl, did you think you were insulting your sister? And he said, no, 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 no. I'm insulting, you know, it's what girls do. It's not, well, I guess it's insulting girls, but, but it's not insulting my sister. And I thought, wow, that is, that is so telling. He mean, he hadn't, he really hadn't even thought about it. And Juliana, I'm so appreciative that she linked us to this because I was moving when this came out and went viral on the internet, and I did not see it at all. And clearly, she said, here's this link in case anyone has managed not to see this yet. And I'm thinking, wow, I managed not to see this yet, and that's appalling. But that makes me think, maybe you haven't either. So link has been put in the show notes of this episode as well please go take a look. It does speak volumes about what Charlotte Perkins Gilman is getting at in her land. 
and what happens when no one tells you that you can't do that or that it isn't ladylike to do that. And we're going to get into conversations as we progress through these chapters, these middle chapters, about where and why this whole concept of quote-unquote ladylike came from or feminine came from. And again, this isn't in any kind of bra-burning or man-hating way. This isn't brought up like that. It's just, this is a really curious thing. Like saying that men have no emotions is, you know, lopping off an entire half of somebody's internal world and life, interior life, um, which is something that I am paying, obviously, attention to because I have two boys. But saying to me, you run like a girl or you throw like a girl, I never really cared. And I know that that puts me in a very strange subsection of women. I knit in public. I sew in public. I I, tr- I truly guess I don't care <laughs> what strangers think. I care what you think. I care what my family thinks. But I don't modulate myself for the rest of the world, I guess. I mean, I always try and be polite and say thank you and things like that and please. But yeah, the embarrassment about doing something and doing it well never really affected me. But I know that I am in the minority in that respect. And so this video was really interesting. And Juliana's comment was that the gyms that the women had in her land in uh, chapter chapter three really made her remember that particular documentary. It's very short. It's It's not a huge investment of time. It's like four or five minutes, maybe tops. So there's that interesting little tidbit. And then pockets. I don't know if any of you watched the recent live version of Peter Pan that was broadcast with Christopher Walken as Captain Hook. It's fascinating because the book has not been updated. The music has been updated. And well, I guess some of the book has been updated, but largely it's still, you know, the boys can be pirates or the boys can be Indians or the boys can be soldiers. The boys can be doing all sorts of adventurous things. And oh, Wendy, you can be cleaning the house. And it's still quite a bit like that. They even added a song for Wendy, which was great. And they changed the Tiger Lily song, thank God. But it was still uh, quite clear that the story was old. And I don't bring that up because of Herland. I bring it up because of the emphasis on pockets. And I, I really, I had no explanation for this. I've been trying to figure this one out. I'm hoping that someone who listens will know. But Peter keeps making comments that Wendy will make us pockets. And you're going to hear in today's chapter, Van make a comment about how many pockets the women have as as though this were a thing, like something to notice. Now, I know I have seen in various movies dresses with, whether they had hoop skirts or whether they just had crinolines underneath, dresses that had pockets in the skirts, hidden in the seams, side seams. But I also know that we talked about those Holland pockets from Jane Eyre, and that those were pockets in an apron that were specifically added because the dresses didn't have pockets. So I I don't know what this is getting at, but it's clearly a thing. And it's a thing from this time period. So if you have any information on that, please call in at 206-350-1642.
There is also an awful lot of slang in this particular chapter. It's more than usual. It's mostly all coming from Terry. And I don't know if that's an indication that Terry is getting more and more uncomfortable and feeling the need to be more ghetto. (laughs) I don't know what's going on with Terry, aside from him being obnoxious. But you're going to hear a lot of time period specific slang. And I have not found a good dictionary for Victorian slang. Uh, Or I guess it's not Victorian, it's Edwardian, right? It's 1915? I don't know. Who is that? George. Georgian? I haven't found a good dictionary for this time period for this kind of slang, so I'm, uh, I'm guessing. Things like, if you can't boost, don't knock, which seems to be, if you can't put up, you need to shut up. Or, he kicked me for a croaker. He kicked me because I was croaking. I was complaining. I was whining. I guess. There's also a joke about Prussian privates. Prussians being involved in the war. I am trying to find pictures of Prussian privates to find out what was going on. I think it's that the Prussian uniform were kind of like jodhpurs and had kind of poofed out things so that if your pockets were full, it made your pants look like that. But that's that's all I've got right now. So if, again, if you know anything, call in or leave a comment on the show notes so that I can share it with everyone. There's one thing that I can tell you. They talk about a particular geographical outcropping, a geological outcropping, looking like it might be a basalt column. And this is actually a very specific thing. If you've ever been in or around, oh gosh, all of a sudden I can't remember if it's, if it's Yosemite or if it's Death Valley. I think it's Death Valley. It's called Devil's Post Pile. And it is a, a rock cliff that's a bunch of these basalt columns. They are, it's a lava flow. It cooled, interestingly, because it cooled in a crystalline formation, but it's crystalline on a huge scale because it's like, you know, two feet across basalt columns that are all hexagonal. So all these columns fit together. They look like matchsticks or, or toothpicks, all all lined up vertically. And it's it's really quite impressive. And then the one that is Devil's Post Pile that I saw when I was a kid, they crack, they fall. And so there's a whole littered yard of not yard measurement, but yard like front yard, in front of this huge basalt column outcropping. And it's just, you know, chunks of these hexagonal stones, these big lava rocks. And it's it's really cool to look at. I think Devil's Tower in Montana is a, a ginormous version of that, where the hexagonal formations are really quite extraordinarily large as compared to Devil's Post Pile, which is more human-sized. And I think that is all I am going to toss at you before we listen to the chapter. There's some more stuff to talk about afterwards, but but I think for before, I'm going to stop here. So here we go with Herland, Chapter 4, read for you by Charles Hutchinson. Chapter 4, Our Venture We were standing on a narrow, irregular, all-too-slanting little ledge, and should doubtless have ignominiously slipped off and broken our rash necks but for the vine. This was a thick-leaved, wide-spreading thing, a little like Amphilopsis. It's, it's not quite vertical here, you see, said Terry, full of pride and enthusiasm. This thing never would hold our direct weight, but I think if we sort of slide down it one at a time, sticking in with hands and feet, we'll reach that next ledge alive. 
As we do not wish to get up our rope again and can't comfortably stay here, I approve, said Jeff solemnly. Terry slid down first, said he'd show us how a Christian meets his death. Luck was with us. We had put on the thickest of those intermediate suits, leaving our tunics behind, and made this scramble quite successfully, though I got a pretty heavy fall just at the end, and was only kept on the second ledge by main force. The main stage was down a sort of chimney, a long, irregular fissure, and so with scratches many and painful and bruises not a few, we finally reached the stream. It was darker there, but we felt it highly necessary to put as much distance as possible behind us. So we waded, jumped, and clambered down that rocky riverbed in the flickering black and white moonlight and leaf shadow, till growing daylight forced a halt. We found a friendly nut tree, those large, satisfying, soft-shelled nuts we already knew so well, and filled our pockets. I see that I have not remarked that these women had pockets in surprising number and variety. They were in all their garments, and the middle one in particular was shingled with them. So we stocked up with nuts till we bulged like Prussian privates in marching order, drank all we could hold, and retired for the day. It was not a very comfortable place, not at all easy to get at, just a sort of crevice high up along the steep bank but it was well veiled with foliage and dry. After our exhaustive three or four hour scramble and the good breakfast food, we all lay down along that crack, heads and tails, as it were, and slept till the afternoon sun almost toasted our faces. Terry poked a tentative foot against my head. How are you, Van? Alive yet? Very much so, I told him, and Jeff was equally cheerful. We had room to stretch if not to turn around, but we could very carefully roll over one at a time behind the sheltering foliage. It was no use to leave there by daylight. We could not see much of the country, but enough to know that we were now at the beginning of the cultivated area, and no doubt there would be an alarm sent out far and wide. Terry chuckled softly to himself, lying there on that hot, narrow little rim of rock, he dilated on the discomfiture of our guards and tutors, making many discourteous remarks. I reminded him that we had still a long way to go before getting to the place where we'd left our machine, and no probability of finding it there. But he only kicked me, mildly, for a croaker. If you can't boost, don't knock, he protested. I never said twould be a picnic but I'd run away in the Antarctic ice fields rather than be a prisoner. We soon dozed off again. The long rest and penetrating dry heat were good for us, and that night we covered a considerable distance, keeping always to the rough forested belt of land which we knew bordered the whole country. Sometimes we were near the outer edge and caught sudden glimpses of the tremendous depths beyond. This piece of geography stands up like a basalt column, Jeff said. Nice time we'll have getting down if they have confiscated our machine, for which suggestion he received summary chastisement. What we could see inland was peaceable enough, but only moonlit glimpses. By daylight we lay very close. As Terry said, we did not wish to kill the old ladies, even if we could. 
And short of that, they were perfectly competent to pick us up bodily and carry us back if discovered. There was nothing for it but to lie low and sneak out unseen if we could do it. There wasn't much talking done. At night, we had our marathon obstacle race. We stayed not for break, and we stopped not for stone, and swam whatever water was too deep to wade and could not be got around. But that was only necessary twice. By day, sleep, sound, and sweet. Mighty lucky it was that we could live off the country as we did. Even that margin of forest seemed rich in foodstuffs. But Jeff, thoughtfully, suggested that that very thing showed how careful we should have to be as we might run into some stalwart group of gardeners or foresters or nut gatherers at any minute. Careful we were, feeling pretty sure that if we did not make good this time, we were not likely to have another opportunity. And at last we reached a point from which we could see far below the broad stretch of that still lake from which we had made our ascent. That looks pretty good to me, said Terry, gazing down at it. Now, if we can find that plane, we know where to aim if we have to drop over this wall some way or other. The wall at that point was singularly uninviting. It rose so straight that we had to put our heads over to see the base, and the country below seemed to be a far-off marshy tangle of rank vegetation. We did not have to risk our necks to that extent, however, for at last, stealing along among the rocks and trees like so many creeping savages, we came to that flat place where we had landed, and there, in unbelievable good fortune, we found our machine. Covered too by Jingo. Would you think they had that much sense? cried Terry. If they had that much, they're likely to have more, I warned him softly. Bet you the things watched. We reconnoitered as widely as we could in failing moonlight. Moons are of a painfully unreliable nature. But the growing dawn showed us the familiar shape, shrouded in some heavy cloth-like canvas, and no slightest sign of any watchman near. We decided to make a quick dash as soon as the light was strong enough for accurate work. I don't care if the old thing will go or not, Terry declared. We can run her to the edge, get aboard, and just plane down, plop, beside our boat there. Look, there, see the boat? Sure enough, there was our motor, lying like a gray cocoon on the flat, pale sheet of water. Quietly but swiftly, we rushed forward and began to tug at the fastenings of that cover. Confound the thing, Terry cried in a desperate impatience. They've got it sewed up in a bag, and we've not a knife among us. Then, as we tugged and pulled on that tough cloth, we heard a sound that made Terry lift his head like a warhorse. The sound of an unmistakable giggle. Yes, three giggles. There they were, Celis, Alima, Elador, looking just as they had when we first saw them, standing a little way off from us, as interested, as mischievous as three schoolboys. Hold on, Terry. Hold on, I warned. That's too easy. Look out for a trap. Let us appeal to their kind hearts, Jeff urged. I think they will help us. Perhaps they've got knives. It's no use rushing them anyhow. I was absolutely holding on to Terry. We know they can outrun and outclimb us. He reluctantly admitted this, 
and after a brief parley among ourselves, we all advanced slowly toward them, holding out our hands in token of friendliness. They stood their ground till we had come fairly near, and then indicated that we should stop. To make sure, we advanced a step or two, and they promptly and swiftly withdrew. So we stopped at the distance specified. Then we used their language, as far as we were able, to explain our plight, telling how we were imprisoned and how we had escaped. A good deal of pantomime here and vivid interest on their part. How we had traveled by night and hidden by day, living on nuts. And here Terry pretended great hunger. I know he could not have been hungry. We had found plenty to eat and not been sparing in helping ourselves. But they seemed somewhat impressed. And after a murmured consultation, they produced from their pockets certain little packages and with the utmost ease and accuracy tossed them into our hands. Jeff was most appreciative of this, and Terry made extravagant gestures of admiration, which seemed to set them off, boy fashion, to show their skill, while we ate the excellent biscuits they had thrown us, and while Elidor kept a watchful eye on our movements. Solace ran off to some distance and set up a sort of duck-on-a-rock arrangement, a big yellow nut on top of three balanced sticks. Alima, meanwhile, gathering stones. They urged us to throw at it, and we did, but the thing was a long way off, and it was only after a number of failures at which those elvish damsels laughed delightedly that Jeff succeeded in bringing the whole structure to the ground. It took me still longer, and Terry, to his intense annoyance, came third. Then Salas set the little tripod again and looked back at us, knocking it down, pointing at it, and shaking her short curls severely. No, she said. Bad. Wrong. We were quite able to follow her. Then she set it up once more, put the fat nut on top, and returned to the others. And there those aggravating girls sat and took turns throwing little stones at that thing, while one stayed by as a setter-up. And then they just popped that nut off two times out of three without upsetting the sticks. Pleased as punch they were, too. And we pretended to be, but weren't. We got very friendly over this game, but I told Terry we'd be sorry if we didn't get off while we could, and then we begged for knives. It was easy to show what we wanted to do, and they each proudly produced a sort of strong clasp knife from their pockets. Yes, we said eagerly. That's it. Please. We had learned quite a bit of their language, you see. And we just begged for those knives, but they would not give them to us. If we came a step too near, they backed off, standing light and eager for flight. It's no sort of use, I said. Come on, let's get a sharp stone or something. We must get this thing off. So we hunted about and found what edged fragments we could and hacked away. But it was like trying to cut sailcloth with a clamshell. Terry hacked and dug but said to us under his breath, Boys, we're in pretty good condition. Let's make a life and death dash and get hold of those girls. We got to. They had drawn rather nearer to watch our efforts, and we did take them rather by surprise. Also, as Terry said, our recent training had strengthened us in wind and limb, and for a few desperate moments those girls were scared and we almost triumphant. 
But just as we stretched out our hands, the distance between us widened. They had got their pace, apparently, and then, though we ran at our utmost speed, and much farther than I thought wise, they, they kept just out of reach all the time. We stopped breathless at last at my repeated admonitions. This is stark foolishness, I urged. They are doing it on purpose. Come back or you'll be sorry. We went back much slower than we came, and in truth, we were sorry. As we reached our swaddled machine and sought again to tear loose its covering, there rose up from all around the sturdy forms the quiet, determined faces we knew so well. Oh, Lord, groaned Terry. The colonels, it's all up. They're forty to one. It was no use to fight. These women evidently relied on numbers, not so much as a drilled force, but as a multitude actuated by a common impulse. They showed no sign of fear, and since we had no weapons whatever, and there were at least a hundred of them, standing ten deep about us, we gave in as gracefully as we might. Of course, we looked for punishment, a closer imprisonment, solitary confinement maybe, but nothing of the kind happened. They treated us as truants only, and as if they quite understood our truancy. Back we went, not under an anesthetic this time, but skimming along in electric motors enough like ours to be quite recognizable, each of us in a separate vehicle with one able-bodied lady on either side and three facing them. They were all pleasant enough and talked to us as much as was possible with our limited powers. And though Terry was keenly mortified, and at first we all rather dreaded harsh treatment, I, for one, began to feel a sort of pleasant confidence and to enjoy the trip. Here were my five familiar companions, all good-natured as could be, seeming to have no worse feeling than a mild triumph as of winning some simple game, and even that they politely suppressed. This was a good opportunity to see the country, too, and the more I saw of it, the better I liked it. We went too swiftly for close observations, but I could appreciate perfect roads as dustless as a swept floor, the shade of endless lines of trees, the ribbon of flowers that unrolled beneath them, and the rich, comfortable country that stretched off and away, full of varied charm. We rolled through many villages and towns, and I soon saw that the park-like beauty of our first-seen city was no exception. Our swift, high-sweeping view from the plain had been most attractive, but lacked detail. And in that first day of struggle and capture, we noticed little. But now we were swept along at an easy rate of some thirty miles an hour and covered quite a good deal of ground. We stopped for lunch in quite a sizable town, and here, rolling slowly through the streets, we saw more of the population. They had come out to look at us everywhere we had passed, but here were more. And when we went in to eat, in a big garden place with little shaded tables among the trees and flowers, many eyes were upon us. And everywhere, open country, village or city, only women. Old women and young women, and a great majority who seemed neither young nor old, but just women. Young girls also, though these and the children, seeming to be in groups by themselves generally, were less in evidence. 
We caught many glimpses of girls and children in what seemed to be schools or in playgrounds. And so far as we could judge, there were no boys. We all looked carefully. Everyone gazed at us politely, kindly, and with eager interest. No one was impertinent. We could catch quite a bit of the talk now, and all they said seemed pleasant enough. Well, before nightfall, we were all safely back in our big room. The damage we had done was quite ignored. The beds as smooth and comfortable as before, new clothing and towels supplied. The only thing those women did was to illuminate the gardens at night and to set an extra watch. But they called us to account next day. Our three tutors, who had not joined in the recapturing expedition, had been quite busy in preparing for us and now made explanations. They knew well we would make our machine, and also that there was no other way of getting down, alive. So our flight had troubled no one. All they did was to call the inhabitants to keep an eye on our movements all along the edge of the forest between the two points. It appeared that many of those nights we had been seen, by careful ladies sitting snugly in big trees by the riverbed or up among the rocks. Terry looked immensely disgusted, but it struck me as extremely funny. Here we had been risking our lives, hiding and prowling like outlaws, living on nuts and fruit, getting wet and cold at night, and dry and hot by day. And all the while, these estimable women had just been waiting for us to come out. Now they began to explain, carefully using such words as we could understand. It appeared that we were considered as guests of the country, sort of public wards. Our first violence had made it necessary to keep us safeguarded for a while, but as soon as we learned the language and would agree to do no harm, they would show us all about the land. Jeff was eager to reassure them. Of course he did not tell on Terry, but he made it clear that he was ashamed of himself and that he would now conform. As to the language, we all fell upon it with redoubled energy. They brought us books in greater numbers, and I began to study them seriously. Pretty punk literature, Terry burst forth one day when we were in the privacy of our own room. Of course one expects to begin on child stories, but I would like something more interesting now. Can't expect stirring romance and wild adventure without men, can you? I asked. Nothing irritated Terry more than to have us assume that there were no men, but there were no signs of them in the books they gave us or the pictures. Shut up, he growled. What infernal nonsense you talk. I'm going to ask him outright. We know enough now. In truth, we had been using our best efforts to master the language and were able to read fluently and to discuss what we read with considerable ease. That afternoon, we were all sitting together on the roof. We three and the tutors gathered about a table, no guards about. We had been made to understand sometime earlier that if we would agree to do no violence, they would withdraw their constant attendance, and we promised most willingly. So here we sat, at ease, all in similar dress, our hair by now as long as theirs, only our beards to distinguish us. We did not want those beards, but had so far been unable to induce them to give us any cutting instruments. Ladies, Terry began, out of a clear sky, as it were. 
Are there no men in this country? Men? Samuel answered. Like you? Yes, men. Terry indicated his beard and threw back his broad shoulders. Men. Real men. No, she answered quietly. There are no men in this country. There has not been a man among us for two thousand years. Her look was clear and truthful, and she did not advance this astonishing statement as if it was astonishing, but quite a matter of fact. But the people, the children, he protested, not believing her in the least, but not wishing to say so. Oh, yes, she smiled. I do not wonder that you are puzzled. We are mothers, all of us. But there are no fathers. We thought you would ask about that long ago. Why have you not? Her look was as frankly kind as always, her tone quite simple. Terry explained that we had not felt sufficiently used to the language, making rather a mess of it, I thought. But Jeff was franker. Will you excuse us all, he said, if we admit that we find it hard to believe? There's no such possibility in the rest of the world. Have you no kind of life where it is possible? asked Zava. Why, yes, some low forms, of course. How low, or how high, rather. Well, there are some rather high forms of insect life in which it occurs. Parthenogenesis, we call it. That means virgin birth. She could not follow him. Birth. We know, of course, but what is virgin? Terry looked uncomfortable, but Jeff met the question quite calmly. Among mating animals, the term virgin is applied to the female who is not mated, he answered. Oh, I see. And does it apply to the male also? Or is there a different term for him? He passed this over rather hurriedly, saying that the same term would apply, but was seldom used. No, she said. But one cannot mate without the other, surely. Is not each, then, virgin before mating? And tell me, have you any forms of life in which there is birth from a father only? I know of none, he answered, and I inquired seriously. You ask us to believe that for two thousand years there have been only women here, and only girl babies born? Exactly, answered Samel, nodding gravely. Of course, we know that among other animals it is not so, that there are fathers as well as mothers. And we see that you are fathers, that you come from a people who are of both kinds. We have been waiting, you see, for you to be able to speak freely with us and to teach us about your country and the rest of the world. You know so much, you see, and we know only our own land. In the course of our previous studies, we had been at some pains to tell them about the big world outside, to draw sketches, maps, to make a globe even out of a spherical fruit and show the size and relation of the continents, and to tell of the numbers of their people. All this had been scant and in outline, but they quite understood. I find I succeed very poorly in conveying the impression I would like to of these women. So far from being ignorant, they were deeply wise. That we realize more and more. And for clear reasoning, for real brain scope and power, they were A number one. But there were a lot of things they did not know. They had the evenest tempers, the most perfect patience and good nature. One of the things most impressive about them all 
was the absence of irritability. So far, we had only this group to study, but afterward, I found it a common trait. We had gradually come to feel that we were in the hands of friends, and very capable ones at that. But we couldn't form any opinion yet of the general level of these women. We want you to teach us all you can, Somel went on, her firm, shapely hands clasped on the table before her, her clear, quiet eyes meeting ours frankly. And we want to teach you what we have that is novel and useful. You can well imagine that it is a wonderful event to us to have men among us after 2,000 years. And we want to know about your women. What she said about our importance gave instant pleasure to Terry. I could see by the way he lifted his head that it pleased him. But when she spoke of our women, some way I had a queer little indescribable feeling, not like any feeling I ever had before, when women were mentioned. Will you tell us about how it came about, Jeff pursued? You said for 2,000 years. Did you have men here before that? Yes, answered Zava. They were all quiet for a while. You should have our full history to read. Do not be alarmed. It has been made clear and short. It took us a long time to learn how to write history. Oh, how I should love to read yours. She turned with flashing, eager eyes, looking from one to the other of us. It would be so wonderful, would it not, to compare the history of 2,000 years to see what the differences are between us, who are only mothers, and you, who are mothers and fathers, too. Of course, we see with our birds that the father is as useful as the mother, almost. But among insects, we find him of less importance, sometimes very little. Is it not so with you? Oh, yes, birds and bugs, Terry said. But not among animals. Have you no animals? We have cats, she said. The father is not very useful. Have you no cattle, sheep, horses? I drew some rough outlines of these beasts and showed them to her. We had, in the very old days, these, said Somel, and sketched with swift, sure touches a sort of sheep or llama. And those, dogs, of two or three kinds. That that, pointing to my absurd but recognizable horse. What became of them? asked Jeff. We do not want them any more. They took up too much room. We need all our land to feed our people. It is a very little country, you know. Whatever do you do without milk? Terry demanded incredulously. Milk? Milk? We have milk in abundance. Our own. Uh, but, but, uh, I mean for cooking, yeah, for grown people, Terry blundered while they looked amazed and a shade displeased. Jeff came to the rescue. We keep cattle for their milk as well as for their meat, he explained. Cow's milk is a staple article of diet. There's a great milk industry to collect and distribute it. Still, they looked puzzled. I pointed to my outline of a cow. The farmer milks the cow, I said, and sketched a milk pail, the stool, and in pantomime showed the man milking. And then it is carried to the city and distributed by milkmen. Everybody has it at the door in the morning. Has the cow no child? asked Somel earnestly. 
Oh, yes, of course, a calf, that is. Is there milk for the calf and you too? It took some time to make clear to those three sweet-faced women the process which robs the cow of her calf and the calf of its true food. And the talk led us into a further discussion of the meat business. They heard it out, looking very white, and presently begged to be excused. So for those of you who have never been on a tour of a dairy farm or pregnant, the girls' reactions might have seemed a little strange to you about the cows and the milk. The thing is that cows, in order to produce milk, first have to get pregnant, just like humans. And then in order to keep producing milk, they have to be constantly milked. Normally what happens in the birth cycle of mammals is you get pregnant, you give birth, you your body starts to produce milk uh, within 24, 48 hours of giving birth. You feed the offspring until the offspring is ready to eat regular food, at which point the child has slowed its intake of milk, your body has slowed production of milk at the same time, and therefore, by the time the kid is weaned, you pretty much aren't making milk anyway either. And that's, you know, in an ideal world, all 70,000 different things can go wrong or, or get tweaked in that scenario. But that's, that's basically the upshot. Which means that if we're looking at cows now, cow mommy gets pregnant, cow mommy has calf, cow mommy nurses calf. Out in nature, the calf would nurse until the calf didn't need any milk anymore. And then it would start to eat grass, and mommy would, by that time, not be giving milk anymore either. In order for cow's milk to be produced for human consumption, we have to keep milking the cow. Because as long as the cow's body is finding that the milk is needed, the cow's body will continue to produce milk. That also means that at some point, you're going to have to pull that calf away from the mother. And that is why the girls turned green. Because the implication is, at some point, someone will take the baby away from the mother. So that's what that was. These guys, Terry's not learning very quick. Jeff's, Jeff's doing a little bit better, and Van's doing better than Terry, that's for sure. And I, I love that the, the girls are always laughing, and that they are always described as looking like schoolboys. Mischievous, trying to get away with things. I like to think of the kid in Christmas Story. <laughs> I double-dog dare you. And there, there is our girls. It's so much fun. But I did notice a couple of things. One is there's a criticism of the moon that's made by the guys. And I wonder if Charlotte Perkins Gilman threw that in on purpose, since women are usually identified with the moon. If there's going to be a, a moon representation and a sun representation, usually the women are the moon and the men are the sun. And Van calls it the unreliable moon, which I thought was interesting. I also thought it was interesting that when the girls threw food to them, when they first got back in touch with each other and the, the girls were giving them, I guess, breakfast, uh, tossing the biscuits and, and food to them, that Van made a point of how they tossed accurately which is why I was thinking about throwing like a girl, but accurately mattered. And I particularly liked, I think it was Alima who 
who got mad at the guys about knocking the nut off the sticks. She didn't get mad because they accomplished it. She got mad because they knocked the whole structure down. And then Gilman makes a very specific point that they used small pebbles, little stones, and took a few tries and eventually knocked just the nut off of the sticks. It was the the precision, the using smaller tools, more precise tools, taking your time, instead of kind of glumphing in and going blah and knocking everything over. And I thought that was a, a subtle but an important distinction that Gilman was trying to make. And I also love that they that they didn't punish the guys for running away. You know, there was no beatdown. There was no uh, new restrictions. They kept more lights on, but that was it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because after 9-11, when everybody was getting rounded up and going to Guantanamo Bay, I got, I was so upset. And I kept saying, you know, all you're going to do is make new enemies if you keep treating these people badly. But if you put them in a room with a television set and you served them five-star meals for every meal and you had them watching Baywatch and Dallas and Falcon Crest and whatever kind of fabulous, rich, wealthy person TV show you could come up with. And you, you do that for a, a month or two. And then, you know, you slowly let the guys start hooking back up with each other in a, in a common room, you know, under surveillance, sure. But, I mean, what are they going to say? You know, <laughs> evil empire? No, it's, wow, these people have a great lifestyle. Why are we trying to attract them? I want this kind of bed and food and girls. I think that was my inherently idealistic nature with my (laughs) overdeveloped sense of injustice at work. I know that probably wouldn't work anyway, but at least you'd make somebody who maybe wasn't such an enemy that way and maybe didn't really want to kill you anymore. They just want more Baywatch. I don't know. And the the women, to a certain extent, seem to be doing something kind of similar, which I think is interesting. So that's pretty much, oh no, oh no, there is one thing I wanted to let you know about. I always come late to the party on books because I'm so busy doing the books for Craftlet that I rarely have time to read other books myself. But my mom, when she was out here at Halloween, turned me on to the Flavia de Luce series. If you have not heard of this, it is a murder mystery series told from the point of view of an 11-year-old girl in 1950 in England. She is hysterical. She's like Sherlock Holmes in an 11-year-old girl's body in the 50s in England, post-war. Really clever, really funny, really interesting author who knows his history and weird details from history, and who wrote this fabulous whole section on a German prisoner of war who loved the Brontes. And that's all I'm going to say. It's book two. Book one is a lot of fun too, but book two is the one where a lot of craft lit moments will really pay off for you. It's, It's just marvelous fun. I am linking to both the book and the Audible version. I will tell you right now, the woman who reads the books for Audible is phenomenal. Her voices are marvelous, 
and her, just her whole affect. And I, and I will be honest, when I first started listening to the books, I thought, wow, I do not know if I can listen to her forever. She has grown on me. Oh my gosh, I am loving, loving these books. And in fact, I have to call my mother because she thinks I wasn't interested and it wasn't that. It was that I was on that horrible deadline that I was months behind on. And and I just couldn't think about another a book for fun because there was no fun. There was no fun. There was only work. And now oh, I'm just loving them. So I'm going to eat up all my Audible credits that I'd saved up just, just listening to these books. So on that note, have a great week. Dorian goes up for all of you who are premium members. Uh, you will have your Dorians. If you are a streaming subscriber, you will also have Dorians if you are a download-only subscriber. So Saturday, everything should be waiting for you. And I think that's it. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Like Craftlet? Leave a review for us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or subscribe at Subbable. If one audiobook with benefits a week isn't enough for you, you can also sign up for a premium membership. There is a streaming option that sends the premium audio through your smartphone or tablet, or there's a downloading option where you can download the files into your computer's hot little hands. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.